Alright folks, I thought I'd do this one called Smiths, Shamans, and Mystagogues by Mercia Eliada, East and West, published October 1955. Okay, Masters of Fire. Primitive peoples universally represent magical religious power to themselves as burning expressing it by words meaning heat, a burn, incandescent, etc. This is why magicians and sorcerers drink salt or spiced water and heat and eat highly spiced foods. They wish by this means to increase their inner heat. Masters of fire, the shamans and sorcerers swallow hot coals. Um, this sounds like the prophet who was Isaiah. Was it? He's like, yeah. He had he he would put hot coals on his mouth, right, to his lips. Touch red hot iron, walk on fire. On the other hand, they can stand great cold. The shamans of the Arctic regions, as well as the ascetics of the Himalayas, thanks to their magic heat, have incredible powers of endurance. The true meaning of magical heat and mastery of the fire is not difficult to guess. These powers show that they have access to a certain ecstatic state or when they are on a higher cultural plane, as in India for instance, to an unconditioned state of perfect spiritual freedom. The mastery of the fire and insensibility both to extreme cold and to the temperature of burning coals are the expression in sentient terms of the fact that the shaman or yogi have gone beyond the conditions of human life and already partake of the condition of spirits. No less than the shamans, smiths are held to be masters of fire. Thus, in certain cultural areas, the smith is held to be the equal, if not the superior, superior of the shaman. Smiths and shamans come from the same nest, says a Yakut proverb. The wife of a shaman is deserving of respect. The wife of a smith is venerable, says another. And the third, the first smith, the first shaman, and the first potter were blood brothers. Hmm, interesting. The smith was the, was the elder and the shaman came between the two. This accounts for the fact that a shaman cannot cause the death of a smith. Yeah, this three brothers makes me think of uh, Noah and his sons. Okay, the Dolgans believe that the shamans cannot swallow the souls of smiths because they, the smiths, keep them in the fire. But it is possible for a smith to seize the soul of a shaman and burn it in the fire. This also makes me think of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. And how they saw a fourth person in there. Okay, according to the mythical beliefs of the Yakuts, the smith learned his trade from the evil divinity Kadaimaksin, the head smith of hell, who lives... <laughs> In an iron house surrounded by flares. Kadai is a renowned master. It is he who repairs the broken or amputated limbs of the heroes. He takes part in the initiation of the famous shamans of the other world. He tempers their souls as he tempers iron.
Hmm. I don't know if you guys ever watched uh, the old Ten Commandments movie. The part where Moses is uh, lost in the desert and they say how, like, gold is put in the furnace to make it pure, so is man. Sometimes it made, it, it made, made me think of that scene. Because also in the Bible it says, as, man as one man sharpens another. So... This whole blacksmith theme is there. Another tradition has it that the ancestor of the Yakuts, Elie, was the first smith. Hmm, L, Elie, E L L I E I. Okay, another mythical smith, Chiki, Chiki, C H Y K Y was the counselor of the warriors. He forged their arms while giving them wise advice. The Yakuts believe that smiths have the power to cure by natural means without the assistance of spirits, as do the shamans. In the ninth generation, smiths possess supernatural powers. They do not fear spirits, and this is why they dare to forge the iron accoutrements that bedeck the costume worn by the shaman. For the clanking of iron drives off spirits. Hmm. Cowbells. Bells in general. Interesting. Among all the Siberian peoples, the smith ranks high in the social hierarchy. His trade is not looked upon as commercial. It also, it also makes me think of um, Japan and samurais and how they would uh, forge their katanas. Hmm, interesting. It is a vocation or a hereditary legacy, and as such, it implies the secrets of initiation. I see. Smiths are under the protection of special spirits. In the Sugnan and other regions of Pamir, the smith's art is reputed, is reputed to be a gift of the prophet David, and on this account, the smith is held in greater respect than the mullah. Hmm. But he must be pure, physically as well as spiritually. The forge is revered as a place of worship, and where no special building is set aside for prayers and assemblies, believers meet at the forge. Huh, I never knew that. The prophet David has evidently taken the place of a celestial being or a cultural hero of the Aborigines. This is clearly shown by the beliefs of the Buryats who relate that before men knew the use of iron, they stoned their beasts to death and tore their flesh to pieces with their teeth and clothed themselves as best as they could in the hides. Damn. Then the white Tangries, the good gods, sent Boshintoj, the celestial smith, to the earth with his daughter and their nine sons to teach men the use of metals. Their first pupils were the ancestors of the families of the smiths, according to another legend. Hmm, Agent Smith. <laughs> Interesting. 
According to another legend, the sons of Boshintos married the daughters of men and thus became the ancestors of the smiths. Yes, this is so interesting. No one may become a smith who is not descended from one of these families. The Buryats also tell of blacksmiths just as they divide their pantheon between white gods and black gods. Their shamans are divided between white and black, good and bad. The blacksmiths who are under the protection of evil spirits are particularly feared by the population. They are, they are able to eat the souls of men. During their ceremonies, they smear their faces with, with soot. The gods and tutelary spirits of the Buryat smiths not only help them in their work, but also defend them against evil spirits. The smiths have their special rights. A horse is offered in sacrifice. Look at that. A horse is offered in sacrifice. He is cut open and his heart is torn out. A specifically shaman right. <laughs> oh, wow. The horse's soul joins the celestial smith, Boshintoj. Nine youths enact the part of the nine sons of Boshintoj, and a man who re represents the celestial smith himself falls into a state of ecstasy during which he recites a long monologue, revealing how in ancient times he sent his sons to the earth to civilize men. Then he touches a hot coal with his tongue. According to the ancient customs, the person representing Boshintoj took melted iron in his hands, as the Siberian and North American shamans still do. The links connecting shamanism with the smith's craft are also shown in the pageant that accompanies certain initial rites of the shamans. In the dreams or hallucinations of their initiation, the future shamans witness themselves being torn to pieces by the demons who are the mystagogues. Now the traditional mise-en-scene suggests more or less directly the gestures, tools, and symbols pertaining to the work of the smith. A yakut, a yakut shaman saw during his initiation illness his limbs being detached and torn apart with iron hooks by the demons. After a number of operations, um, the demons collected his bones and soldered them together with iron. Iron Man is a shaman. What? <laughs> okay. Another shaman had his body cut into small pieces by the mother bird of prey who had an iron beak and feathers of iron. Birdman. Another was cradled during the hallucinations of his initiation in an iron cradle. Lastly, we take the following details from a long autobiographical account given by an Avam Samoyed shaman. The future shaman saw himself enter during his uh, mallet, during his shaman sickness, basically into the interior of a mountain where he saw a naked man working the bellows. Look at this shit. This is talking about a volcano, man. This is talking about a fucking volcano. 
Beneath the fire was a cauldron. Look at this shit. The naked man seized him with an enormous pair of pincers, cut off his head, broke up his body into little bits, and, and threw everything into the cauldron, where he left it to simmer for three years. Cyclops, cauldrons, um... Oh my god, this was just making me think of something I just forgot. God damn it. Oh yeah, Jesus healing that apparently demon-possessed man, remember? And he sent the spirits into the pigs. The man was naked and shit. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Okay, Simmer for three years. In the cavern, there were also three anvils, and the naked man forged his head on the third which he used for forging the best shamans. What? Then he fished out the bones, brought them together, and clothed them with flesh. A Tungus shaman relates that during initiation, his head was cut off and forged with metallic pieces. We should also note that the costume worn by shamans is loaded with bits of iron in the shape of bones that give the wearer the appearance of a skeleton. From what we have so far said, it would seem that the presence of iron in the body of the shaman plays a part somewhat similar to that played by crystals or other magic stones with the medicine men of Australia, Oceania, and South America. The rock crystals with which he is stuffed allow the Australian or Ocean shaman to see spirits and souls, to fly in the air, etc., for he has assimilated the Uranian sacred quality of crystals fallen from the vault of heaven. We know where crystals come from. We know what vault of heaven means. It's a volcano. We can note a similar solidarity between certain Siberian shamans and iron. I mean, think about it. Where the fuck do you think we got the idea of iron from? <laughs> Where do you think iron comes from? Iron ore, which is rocks which come from volcanoes. <laughs> this entails consequences. Iron is reserved to the smith, who thus acquires greater magical or religious prestige. I mean, this is basically where alchemy probably started. I mean, a volcano is basically alchemy 101. It's basically creating something out of nothing. As we have seen, the fact that the sacred character of shamans and smiths has a common origin is proved by the mastery of fire. Expressed in theoretic terms, this mastery means that they have risen above ordinary human conditions. Moreover, the smith forges the weapons for the heroes. He not only makes them materially, but invests them with magical powers. It is the mysterious art of the smith that transforms them into magic tools. Hence the close relations that exist between between smiths and heroes as attested in the epic poems. F. Althium, Althium notes that in the epic songs of almost all the Mongol tribes and in those of the Turks also, the word smith, Darkhan, also means hero and free lance. 
same writer throws light on the military importance of the drum and the shaman costume, which is a kind of metal cuirass. I mean, if you look at some of these old shaman costumes, that's probably where you could have also got the samurai outfits from, or even the knight's armors, the, the really old school style stuff before like chainmail stuff is like if you look at the shaman costumes look up what a cu metal cuirass is it's basically a fucking what the knights would wear back in the day okay smith sometimes rise to royal rank some accounts state that genghis khan started as a mere smith and the tribal legend of the mongols traces the trade of smith back to the royal house in the Iranian tradition, the smith Kavi was the ancestor of the Kavya dynasty. One day he fixed his leather apron to a spearhead, thus raising the standard of revolt against revolt against the dragon king. The leather apron became the royal banner of Iran. Okay, so dragon could might the dragon might also have been just been a horse apparently like back in the day the war horses when they had when they were all decked out with their armor and, sh and shit and when they would like breathe out and it was cold it looked like so apparently that could also be one explanation of dragons okay um because the rider and the horse and you know the swords and all this shit was the whole animal was just chaos so okay let us bear in mind these points of contact masters of the fire shamans smiths heroes mythical kings founders of dynasties we shall have more to say on the relations between the magic heat heroic initiation and the smith for the present let us examine the religious and, sh and social status of the smith in other cultural cultural areas all right um yeah this whole thing is okay this the smith in java is now a poor man but certain facts show that he still enjoys a privileged position he is addressed as pande expert when he is a blacksmith and as empu or Kya, Kai, Kyai, when he's an armorer. But in ancient times, the smelting of metals was considered a mysterious work, and whole literature arose around the smith who forged the Chris, who was often honored as a prince. The smith formerly occupied an honorary position at court, and under some circumstances, he could represent the whole community. In ancient Java, the relation between the smith and the prince were comparable to those who between wait to those between brothers of the same blood. This makes me think of Moses and Aaron too. Okay, the genealogies of smiths, like those of princes, were traced back to the gods. Even now, when the armorer is getting ready to forge a kris, the workshop is decorated as though it were a kaon. That is a holy place. The offerings brought before the work starts. The offering brought before the work starts are like those brought before the ceremony of circumcision or marriage. 
Okay, at Bali there are initiation rites for apprentice smiths and while the work is going on mantras are pronounced before using each of the tools. The that's so interesting. The Pandey West of Bali boasts written traditions telling of their creation through the intercession of Brahma, who also conferred on them the Shakti, the mystical powers needed for their trade. If we eliminate recent Hindu influences, we can easily disentangle the original complex of the Indonesian smith, the myth of divine origin and the oral or written transmission of genealogies, the sacred nature of the work and initiation rites, the mystic fraternity with kings and persons of privileged social position. Most of these specific features have claimed our attention in the complex mythical ritual of the Siberian and Central Asian smith. Let us here call special attention to the written genealogies which point to the existence of a long oral tradition. Um, now, now, to know and recite these genealogies is the work both of a shaman priest and of a poet. Witness is born to the relations existing between shamans, heroes, and smiths by the epic poetry of Central Asia and Carl Muley, after showing the shaman structure of some Greek epic themes, has very opportunely called attention to the connection between the smith and the shaman heroes in the Finnish Kalevala. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, anytime there's poetry involved, it's probably a shaman. Especially older shit. Okay, some aspects of this affinity between the trade of smith and epic poetry can be noted in our day in the Near East and in East Europe where gypsy smiths and tinkers are generally genealogists, bards, and minstrels. We cannot here dwell at, at length on this complex and interesting question which would require lengthy studies, but it must be noted that the, that the smith, by the sacred nature of his occupation, with its myths and genealogies of which he is the guardian, by his structural affinity with the shamans and warriors, is called to is called on to play a part in the creation and spread of epic poetry. As far back as 1880, Richard Andre, with the documentation, With the documentation then available, pointed out that metal workers form almost everywhere a group apart. They are mysterious beings who must be isolated from the other members of the community. Yeah, I mean, because if you think about it, the fuckers who knew how to make the weapons back in the day were, well, that's knowledge. <laughs> Sacred knowledge. Yeah, little is known of the social position and the magical religious function of the smiths in pre-columbian america among the tribes of northwest america they enjoy a privileged position and the secret traditions of their craft are transmitted only to the members of their family yeah that's just an age-old secret man you keep it in the family you keep the so that way you know they're the ones in charge just like the royals, just like rich people keep the money with more rich people. So, you know, I mean, it makes sense, right? 
it's just I mean it's like how everything else pretty much works works in nature is you stick with your own kind basically all right um let me see I want to read um, I want to read some more from here but also from um, this one other thing for some poetry some uh, Okinawan poetry but anyways let me uh, let me let me continue reading over here Okay, smiths, warriors, masters of initiation. We shall only glance at another group of myths in which the relations relations between the divine smiths and the gods are placed on a different plane. We have here the well-known myth of the fight between the celestial god and the dragon of the waters. The stake at issue is world sovereignty but it is always of cosmic range. When the monster is vanquished, the god draws out the world from its body. The mythical motif of Marduk and Tiamat, or in other versions, organizes the world, placing it on solid foundations by binding the monster who is cast into underground depths. Now, in most versions of this myth, it is from a divine smith that the god of the hurricane receives the marvelous weapons that assure his victory. In the Canaanite text, the poem of Baal, the god Koshar Wahasis forges for Baal the two bludgeons with which he will fell Yam, lord of the seas and of underground waters. In Ugaritic mythology, Koshar is the divine smith, according to the tradition transmitted by Sankoniaton, Kusar was the first to discover iron. In an Egyptian version of the same mythical motif, Ptah, the potter god, forges the weapons that enable Horus to defeat Set. Hmm. Likewise, the divine smith Vashtri forges the weapons of Indra for his fight with the dragon Vrita, or Vritra. Hephaestus forges the thunderbolt bolt which enables Zeus to triumph over Typhon. Thor crushes the serpent Midgad. Midgard Shormer with his hammer Mjolnir forged by the dwarves Scandinavian counterparts of the Cyclops but the cooperation between the divine smith and the gods is not restricted to the assistance given in the great struggle for sovereignty over the world the smith is likewise the architect and the craftsman of the gods. Koshar fashions the bows of the gods, directs the building of the palace of Baal, and equips the sanctuaries of the other divinities. Theodore Gaster also notes that this smith god has relations with music and song. Of course, of course. 
Sanchoniation says that Cusser also invented the art of eloquence and that of making spells and songs. In the Ugaritic text, singers are called kotarat. The close connection between the smith's craft and song is clearly noted in the Semitic vocabulary. The Arab qyn, to forge, to be a smith, is related to the Hebrew, Syrian, and Ethiopian terms designating the action of singing and toning a dirge. It is unnecessary to recall the etymology of the word poet from the Greek poietes, maker, and the semantic vicinity of artisan to artist. The, San the Sanskrit tax, tax, or T-A-K-S, to make is utilized to express the composition of the hymns of the Rig Veda. The old Scandinavian Lotha, Lotha Smither, Song Smith, and the modern Rhenish Reimschmid, Potaster, point still more clearly to the close ties between the craft of Smith and the art of the poet or musician. Like relations have been noted in the case of the Turco Tatars and the Mongols by whom the smith is associated with heroes, musicians, healers, and fortune-tellers. The name the gypsies give themselves is, in Europe, Rome, in Armenia, Lom, in Persia, Dome, in Syria, Dome or Dumb. Hmm. Now, writes Jules Bloch, Dome is in India the name of a tribe, or rather of an agglomeration of tribes who are widespread and known from of old. In Sanskrit texts, they are associated to musicians and untouchables, but they are known above all else, above all as smiths and musicians. Interesting. It is not without interest to note that relations exist between smelters and Asur smiths and the doms. Prior to the present dynasty, a Dom dynasty reigned over the Asur, who had perhaps come from the north. It would therefore seem that there exists a different, at different cultural levels a close tie between the art of the smith, occult sciences, and the arts of song, dance, and poetry. It would also seem that these applied arts were transmitted in an atmosphere steeped in the sacred and the, and the mysterious, implying for initiation, specific rites, craft, secrets. I mean, even with, like, nowadays, you have, like, the family recipe secret. You don't give that away, right? We are far from having penetrated all the points and all the aspects of this ritual complex, and some of them will doubtless remain for forever close to us. A few groups of myths and me metallurgic metallurgic rites that we have reviewed suffice to give us an idea of their extreme complexity and suggest to us the varied conceptions of the world that they imply. One element is however constant as it is that of the sacred nature of metals and therefore of the ambivalent and mysterious character 
of the work of the miner and metal worker. Some mythological themes of the former Stone Ages have been embodied in the mythologies of the Metal Ages. Special significance attaches to the fact that the symbolism of the Thunderstone, which assimilates stone missiles to thunderbolts, was greatly developed in the mythologies of the Metal Ages. The weapons forged by the god smiths or the divine smiths for the Uranian gods are thunder and lightning. This is so, for instance, in the case of the arms presented by the Vashtri to Indra. The clubs of Ninurta are called World Crusher and World Pounder and are assimilated to thunder and lightning. So again, thunder and lightning are the weapons of Zeus and the hammer Mjolnir of Thor is the thunderbolt. The clubs spring from the hand of Baal for Koshar has forged him weapons which can be hurled to a great distance. Zeus hurls afar his thunderbolts. One grasps, grasps the interlocking of images, thunder, the thunderstone, a mythical memory of the Stone Age, the magic weapon which strikes from afar kind of makes me think of a fucking a um, Arthur and his his sword was Excalibur. Hmm. Came out of the stone, so meaning like it was forged by. Hmm. Okay. Um. Sometimes returning like a boomerang to the hand of its master, Thor's hammer. We can here decipher some traces of a mythology of the Homo Faber. We can guess the magic aura of the tool forged, the exceptional prestige of the craftsman and worker, and above all, in the metal age of the smith. It is anyhow significant that unlike the pre-agricultural and pre-metal mythologies in which the celestial god possesses as his natural prerogatives the thunder and all the other meteor meteorolo meteorological manifestations in the mythologies of historical peoples Egypt the Near East Indo-Europeans the storm god receives his weapons thunder and lightning from a divine smith one cannot but see in this the, mytholo the mythologized victory of Homo Faber, a victory that already announces the supremacy, the will, the supremacy he will enjoy in future industrial ages. Jeez, man! In all these myths of smiths who helped the supreme gods to assure their supremacy, what we note is the extraordinary importance attributed to the forging of a tool. This forging preserves, of course, for a long time its magic or divine character. For all creation, all construction cannot but be a superhuman work. Finally, we should mention a last aspect of this mythology of the maker of tools. The craftsman strives to imitate his divine models. The smiths of the gods forge weapons assimilated to thunder and lightning. 
weapons with which the celestial deities of pre-metal mythologies were provided by nature. In their turn, the human smiths imitate their superhuman masters. But it should be noted that on the mythological plane, mere imitation of the divine models makes way for a new theme, that of the importance of the work of making in itself the demiurgic abilities of the worker, in short, the apotheosis of the faber, the creator of objects. One is tempted to seek in this category of primordial experiences the source of all the mythic ritual complexes in which the divine or semi-divine smith and craftsmen are at the same time architects, dancers, musicians, and witch doctors. Each of these qualities throws light on a different aspect of the great mythology of the knowledge of how to make, that is, the possession of the occult secret of making constructing. The words of a song possess considerable creative power. One creates objects by chanting the necessary words. Vainamoinen chants a boat, that is, builds it by chanting a song composed of magic words, and he does not know the last three words. He goes to inquire for them to a famous magician, Antero Vipunen. To make something means that you know the magic formula which will enable you to invent it or make it appear spontaneously. What? The craftsman is therefore one who knows secrets. He is a magician. And so all crafts require imitation and are handed down by an occult tradition. He who makes efficiently is he who knows the secrets by which they are made. Did you hear that? He who makes efficiently is he who knows the secrets by which they are made. This also explains to a large extent the funeral, the what, the function of the mythical African smith as cultural hero. He has been charged by God to complete creation, to organize the world, and also to train men by revealing to them the art of cultivation. We must stress above all the role we must stress above all the role of the African smith in the initiatory rites of puberty and of secret societies. In both cases, he reveals mysteries. In other words, he imparts knowledge of ultimate realities. We can feel in the religious part played by the smith a replica of the mission of civilizing hero performed by the celestial smith. He collaborates in the spiritual formation of the youths. He is a sort of teacher, the terrestrial match of the first teacher who descended from heaven in the old days. It has been noted that in ancient Greece, some groups of mythical character, Telkines, yo, did you hear that? Telkines, 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 Kabeiroi, Kabeiroi, wait, 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 okay, Cortes Dactyloi, were both secret confraternities in touch with the mysteries 
and also guilds of metal workers. Several traditions represent the Telkings as the first iron and bronze workers, the Idin de Toloi, the Idin Dactyloi discovered how to smelt iron and the Cortez how to work bronze. Hmm, interesting. So there you go. You have iron, uh, bronze, and iron bronze smelt iron the court okay they were also formed for the special dances which they performed by clashing together their weapons the Kabeiroi, like the Korets, are called masters of the furnaces powerful over fire and their cults spread all over the eastern mediterranean the Dactyloi were the priests of Sibylli, a mountain divinity, but also of mines and caves dwelling within mountains. According to a tradition handed down by Clement of Alexandria, the Corybantes, known here also by the name um, of Cabeiroi, were three brothers, one of whom was killed by the other two who buried his head at the foot of Mount Olympus. This legend on the origin of the mysteries is linked to a myth on the origin of metals. Now these groups of mythical metal workers are acquainted with magic, the dactyloid, the telkings, etc., with dance, with mysteries, and the initiation of young boys. We thus have in these myths traces of remote conditions in which the, confrat the confraternities of smiths played a part in mysteries and initiation rites. Now these groups of mythical, okay, H. Jean Mayer has rightly stressed the function of teachers that pertain, that pertain to the corets in the ceremonies of initiation relating, relating to age groups. As educators and masters of initiation, the corets have some features in common with the mission of the smiths, the civilizing heroes of the Africans. Now it is a significant fact that at this later and much more complex stage of culture, the duties of the smith and the blacksmith as masters of initiation rites still survive in a, de in a definite form. The blacksmith has part both in the magic charms of the smith and in the symbols that have crystallized around the horse. Hmm. Not the draft horse harnessed to the war, ch war chariot, but the saddle horse, a discovery made by the nomadic horsemen of Central Asia. It is in this connection that the horse has been the center of many myths. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. The horse and the horseman occupy the horse and the horseman occupy an important place in the ideologies and ritual of the societies of men, and it is here that we meet the blacksmith. The phantom horse came sometimes to the smithy with Odin or the troop of the mad hunt to be shooed. In some parts of Germany and Scandinavia, the blacksmith took part until a comparatively recent period in, initiate, in initiation pageants of the type of the Mannerbund 
in the Steiner mark, he shoes the courser, that is the dummy horse, killing it to resuscitate it again. In Scandinavia and North Germany, shoeing a horse is a rite performed at initiation into a secret society, but it is also a marriage rite. Yo, that makes sense. The blacksmith and the horse for... Yeah, that completely completely makes sense. Hmm. Okay, um Where was that? Okay, as Otto Hoffler has shown, the ritual of shoeing the horse, killing it at a wedding and bringing it back to life. Sounds like Jesus' story. With or without the horseman marks both the departure of the the bridegroom from the group of bachelors and his entry into that of married men. Sounds like Samson's wedding too. The smith and the blacksmith play a similar part in the ritual of the Japanese societies of men. The smith god is called Ame no Ma Hitotsu no Kami, the one-eyed divinity of heaven. Hmm. One-eyed. Cyclops. Yeah, the people who work metal, they wear that mask in front, remember? Y- you know what I'm t- Hmm, interesting. Okay, Japanese mythology offers us a certain number of one-eyed and one-legged divinities inseparable from the Manorbundi. They are either gods of thunder and of the mountains or cannibal demons. (laughs) Yo, is that where demons come from? The idea? Cannibals? I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. They come at night, steal you, and then eat you while you're alive. Who knows? Okay, now, Odin was also <laughs> represented as an old one-eyed man. Yo, even this this theme even goes with um, Egypt with Horus and his dad. What was his dad's name? But anyways, now Odin was also represented as an old one-eyed man, or one of feeble sight, with when he was not blind. Yo, this also makes me think of Jacob and Esau, and his their dad, who was like, yo, the phantom horse who came to the blacksmith's smithy was one-eyed. We have here a mythical ritualistic motive that is very complex and which we cannot undertake to study why not what we are concerned with here is the pageant of the manor bund in which the one-eyed one-legged and other cripples are probably reminiscent of the initiatic mutilations or else describe the appearance of the master Initiators, small people, dwarfs, etc. Huh. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. 
The divinities who were crippled were associated with strangers, the men of the mountains, the underground dwarves. That is, with the mysterious mountain people's redoubt, redoubtable, metal work, redoubtable metal workers. In Nordic mythologies, dwarfs were reputed to be excellent smiths. Some some fairies enjoyed like some fairies enjoyed like reputation. The tradition of a people of small size, who are all engaged in working metals, and who lived in the depths of the earth, is also found elsewhere. In the belief of the Dogons, the first mythical inhabitants of the region were Negrilos, who have now disappeared into the bowels of the earth. They are indefatigable, indefatigable smiths, and the blows of their hammers can still be heard. Hmm. The societies of warrior men, both in Europe and in Central and North Asia, Japan had initiatory rites in which the smith and the blacksmith played a part. It is known that after the conversion of North Europe to Christianity, Odin and the Mad Hunt were assimilated to the devil and the hordes of the damned. A long step was thus taken towards identifying the smith and the blacksmith with the devil. I see, that's where it all started. So the devil is basically a shaman, a blacksmith shaman. The mastery of fi of the fire, a quality common to magicians, shamans, and smiths, was considered in Christi Christian folklore as diabolical, of course. Jesus Christ. One of the most frequent of folklore images of the devil represents him as spitting fire. This may have been the last mythological transformation of the archetypal image of the fire master. Odin Wotan was the master of the wood, the Führer Religiosus. Wotan, that is madness, wrote Adam von Bremen. Now, the wood, like some other terms of the Indo-European religious vocabulary, Führer, Ferg, Menos, expresses anger and extreme heat caused by an excessive ingestion of the sacred power. The warrior heats himself during his combat of initiation. He gives out a heat which is reminiscent of the magic heat produced by shamans and yogis. From this point of view, the warrior resembles the other masters of fire. Magicians, shamans, yogis, smiths. Yo, this also makes me think of in the New Testament when it says, And the Holy Spirit came down as flames of fire. Hmm. New light may be thrown on the relations described above between the fighting gods, Baal, Indra, etc., and the divine smiths, Koshar, Vashtri, etc., the divine smith works with fire. The warrior god, by his furor, magically produces fire in his own body. It is intimacy, familiarity with fire that leads such widely different magical or religious experiences to converge, to blend, and which brings together such dissimilar vocations as those of the shaman, 
the smith, the warrior, and the mystic. Mercy, okay, hold on. Alright, so now I'm gonna read this one called Okinawan Shaman Songs from ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒーローズ、ヒー
it came from the volcano's head. Okay. They carry the longing to the sun god in the east. The ancient woman, Amaniko, hears the prayer. The old ancestress, Kesaniko, accepts the prayer. The sun god below earth chooses a strong day and comes toward the central fortress, comes toward the heart of Shuri Castle, toward the place of dance in the golden castle, toward the trance ground in the towering castle. Yo, is this like a rave going on here? Arriving on the beach at Ayako Harbor, arriving on the beach at Shitsoku Harbor, in the trance hall, the sun enters the shining shaman god. In the hall, through her eyes into those of the king. In his heart, he feels the power. In his heart, he is born once again. King descended from King Ezo. King descended from the sun. As long as the sun god rules below the earth, as long as the sun god rises in the east, your central fortress will prevail. Shuri Castle will remain on earth. The great sun shaman god will protect it with night. The young sun shaman god will watch it with daylight. Hmm. Shaman god will protect it with night. Okay. Another one. Mount Sayafa, sacred peak. AOE, pull, push. Mount Sokonia, sacred underground shrine. A god horse in the three holy chambers, a god horse in the three inner rooms, hooves the color of snow, hooves of pure white, trying on a golden saddle from Kyoto, Kyoto, trying on a silver saddle from Kyoto, attaching a glistening crupper, attaching a glistening breast harness, fastening a cinch of hemp thread, Fastening a bridle born of clouds. The great shaman now mounting. The country's protector now riding. Descending to Yonafa Harbor. Descending to Batin Harbor. Sailing out past bays. Sailing out past capes. Walk on toward the east. Walk on toward the sun-birthing hole. What is a sun-birthing hole, man? I don't know, but it has volcano written all over it. It even has a horse, a fucking glistening horse, man. <laughs> okay. Eagle fish of the east, flying fish leaping eastward. Surely, female god shamans protecting us. Let us be at peace. Protected eagle fish of the sun birthing hole. The sun-birthing hole often seems distinctly female. In this song, anxious sailors on the open sea are relieved to see fish leaping above the waves, a sign that the spirits of their shaman relatives have passed through the hole and been reborn in fish form to lead them to safety. The fish are referred to as kami, god shamans. The song was probably sung on land by the shamans who, in singing it, created a space and time in which their lovers and relatives far away at sea could find peace and safety. Alright, the superb people of Tiara climbing up Akafanta Hill. Jack and Jill went up the hill. Okay, when they gaze out over Ofotabaru, 
fields swelling with white rice, how pure, swaying in the wind, the renowned outstanding people. Until the early 20th century, the shamans of some rural, rural areas would climb the highest local hills and stare down in Shimami, viewing ceremonies intended to invest their villages with power and fertility. Jack and Jill went up the hill, man. In this Amoro, probably sung around the time of rice planting, the leading villagers, the shamans, climbed the highest hill and in timeless and in timeless time view the fields of newly planted rice. Their trance gaze seems to stroke the rice like wind. Present, future, and timeless time engage in a dialogue, much as the shaman's eyes are engaged by the horizon and the fields. Man. Okay, Omoro 993. Beautiful legged brother, protected by the shaman god, beloved brother. Graceful legged brother, protected by the shaman god, when my brother travels to Shuri. When my, when my brother goes up to the city of Lourdes, I will fly ahead of his ship. I will be a bird and lead him. Omoro 965. My sister, a shaman god, come to protect me. Ah, yes, my sister, become a shaman god, turning into a beautiful butterfly, turning into a mysterious butterfly. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady. <laughs> shaman here sings about a brother on a ship that has lost its way or is struggling in high waves the butterfly the man desires to be near is both an island and his sister remember gandalf well i think that was was it a butterfly or was it a moth when he jumped off the tower okay omoro 1000 omoro 1000 okay the great shaman of Itokina giving her child straw sandals, climbing the holy peak. When she sees the godship, she thinks so hard it hurts about her younger brother's safe voyage. Fourth month hail falling, sleeves like fine dragonfly wings, raising her face wet when she sees the godship. What is it? What is up with the ship? Okay, romantic love and spiritual communication sometimes mix in Omoro. Following a village viewing ceremony, a woman gazes out at a ship, which is simultaneously a god and a shaman like herself. A ship? Because it is a shaman ship, it is a part of her spiritual body. On this ship is her lover, who, being male, is also her, her younger brother. With her spiritual gaze, she surrounds and protects the ship from harm. Okay, I don't know what that is talking about, but I'm going to have to look into that. And I'm going to leave that at that. Alright, peace.